Amen. It's a great prayer for us to pray as we look to God's Word. You can be seated. We have a longer scripture reading today, so I think it'll be easier to focus on the Word today if you're sitting. And just a heads up, there will be a couple of sections in this passage where you'll hear a lot of strange names that are completely unfamiliar to you. Um, So just to help you as we come to those, in verse 8, this is is the the boasts of the king of Assyria, and uh, he's talking about these pairs of cities, um, and he's basically saying he'll be able to conquer Kalno because it's just like Carchemish that he's already conquered. He'll be able to conquer Hamath because it's just like Arpad that he's already conquered. And the third one's key, he'll be able to conquer Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, because it's just like Damascus, the capital of Syria, that he's already conquered. So it's his arrogant boast of how easy it's going to be for him to conquer these three cities because he's already conquered cities just like them. And then the other one where it's going to be a lot of place names comes uh, in verses 28 uh, to 32. And those are all cities in Israel and Judah that are kind of the marching path of how the king of Assyria is going to come down. And God even names exactly where he's going to stop the forward march of the king of Assyria uh, in verse 32. The overall theme of this passage is how God is sovereign even over the arrogant and wicked uh, aspirations of world rulers. So God reigns over even the evil intentions of great world rulers. So let's hear God's word. Isaiah chapter 10, uh, start in verse 5, we'll go to the end of the chapter. Woe to Assyria! The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and tread them down like the mire of the streets." But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by, my, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of the peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth, or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? 
or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord, God of hosts, will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, Be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed at their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck and his yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aoth. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lasha. Laisha, O poor Anathoth. Madmina is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebam flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Let's pray. Father, we look to you, our God, our Father, the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, our God, three in one. We look to you to be our teacher to write your word on our hearts, to speak to us, to help us understand your word, but more than understanding, to receive your word, by faith to believe your word, and to know how to live your word in our lives. We pray that you would do this work in us that only you can do, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name.
Did you ever get someone to do something that you wanted them to do, and they did it willingly, but for a completely different reason than yours? You might think, well, that sounds manipulative. I don't think I've ever done anything like that. Okay, well, let's put it this way. If you're an adult, and you've ever successfully gotten a group of kids to play the quiet game, you've done it. Okay, all you wanted was a few minutes of quiet, and they, you convinced them that this was a game that they could win. And it worked. But even on a more basic level, like if you have kids and you've paid your kids to do some job around the house or yard, they're doing it for the money. You're doing it because you want the work done. And we think about it that way, well, that's like so much employment, right? I mean, ideally, it works best if both employer and employee are working together for the same goal. They both want an excellent product. They both want excellent service. But we know the reality of it many times. The employee's just there to get a paycheck, and they're going to do what they are required to do because they don't want to get fired and they want to keep being able to earn money, and that's okay. Like, the employer's fine with that. As long as you show up and do the job, we'll pay you, and, and, and that's how it works. As Christians who believe in the Bible, we believe that the Lord God Almighty is sovereign over all things. That is, he is the king who reigns over everything. The Bible teaches this repeatedly. I'll give you a small sampling of places where the Bible teaches this. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over most things. Nope. His kingdom rules over all. In Job 42, 1 and 2, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by God, and at the end of the chapter, he rightly concludes about God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Or Ephesians 1, 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of of his will. So how many things does God work according to the counsel of his will? All things. How much does his kingdom rule over? All. Well, that leaves us with a question then. Because there's a lot of evil in the world. There's a lot of people doing a lot of things that God says they shouldn't be doing. Does he rule over that stuff too? Yes. He does. And yet in such a way that he is not personally, morally responsible for the evil in the world. Earlier in the service, we used the words of the Westminster Confession, and uh, we're going to unpack some of this uh, through this passage here. But we said that God from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordained everything that ever happens. Yet in such a way that God is not the author of sin, 
nor is violence done to the will of the creatures, nor is the power or possibility of secondary causes taken away, but rather established. Here the Westminster Confession is being very careful to trace the contours of the lines drawn by Scripture as faithfully as possible. We are limited human beings. We have finite minds. We cannot understand the mystery of the ways of the God of the universe. Okay? It's easier to take Silas and Sophie Schick and teach them calculus. I'm sure they're brilliant children, but it would be easier to take those baby twins and teach them calculus than it would be to try to explain to us all the ways in which God works and why he does all that he does, right? I heard this quote from a pastor a while ago, and it's stuck in my head. It's like, when we ask God why, we don't understand that we are asking him to pour the Pacific Ocean into a Dixie cup. But we know what God has revealed, and that is that he is sovereign over all things, and yet he is not the author of sin. And I think, as limited human beings, we can get some help thinking about what I opened with, that, that even among human beings, you can want something done, and you can use someone else's free will choice to do it. They have a completely different motive than your motive, and yet you are able to get that thing done through them. It's a, it's a limited way in which we can see that reflected in human interactions. And it's not sinister, it's just the way that it works. If you know your kids well enough, parents, you have at many times over the years successfully gotten them to do things that they probably didn't want to do otherwise, but you knew what would properly motivate them to get it done. And that's part of being a good parent, actually, is to know your children that well. So with that in mind, let's go back and look at um, just the opening of this passage. God says, woe to Assyria the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few." God's at work. He's using the king of Assyria as a rod of discipline against his people. His people deserve God's wrath. Yes, last week's sermon was so important to understand this week's sermon. We have to understand how deserving they were of God's discipline, how much they had arrogantly refused to listen to him and turned aside from his ways and gone after idols and trusted in human powers rather than trusting in the Lord and refused to worship God and glorify him. And it's also very important that we understand that that is us as well, that we are stubborn and we are rebellious and we deserve God's discipline. They're so deserving of God's wrath that he calls them, in verse 6, a godless nation. Stunning that he would call Israel, his own nation, godless. And yet they were, functionally. They, they rejected the one true God, and you can't replace the one true God. And if you try to do that with substitutes, it's godlessness. Uh, There's a, a helpful book um, that was written a few years ago that really unpacks how it is that 
Most professing Christians live lives of what the author calls functional atheism. In other words, we come to church, we sing praises to God, we hear God's word, we think about the sermon a little bit, we leave, Monday morning comes, and we live like there's no God. We live as if everything depends upon us and our own effort and our own ability. We need to figure it out. We need to solve the problems. We need to make things happen. We put our trust in things that are not God. Oh, yeah, maybe we pray before our meal and thank God for the meal. But functionally, we live as atheists. And and I really think that wrestling with this theologically thorny issue that's here in this passage for us is one of the things that will help us to stop doing that. Because the more we really come to understand that God really is sovereign over everything in our lives and that he really is working everything out according to his good plan and purpose for us, the more we will be able to practically trust him and follow him on a day-to-day basis. But if we think that really human sin and, and the complex messy web of human choices and interactions, that all of that really has nothing to do with God. It's just sort of the way the world works, or that's just how the world is, or that's just the practical realities of life. And we think that's got really nothing to do with my faith in Jesus and my forgiveness of sins. Well, then our faith in God is going to be totally divorced from our lives, because where we live our lives is in the messy tangle of sinful human interactions, right? That's where we live. And so if we don't understand that God is sovereign over that and that he's working out his good purposes through that, we're going to separate God in our minds from our lives. So God is using the king of Assyria to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And the king of Assyria is going to be able to do exactly as much as God wants him to do and not one bit more. The king of Assyria here in this passage, he's boasting that he's going to be able to march right on down to Jerusalem and even conquer Jerusalem because how is Jerusalem different from any other city in the world? And how is the God they worship, the idol they worship there in Jerusalem, this Yahweh person, how is he any different from any of the other gods of any of the rest of the world? And God basically says, "Mm, you're going to find out. You're going to find out. I'm going to use you to do exactly what I want you to do, and then I'm going to stop you exactly where I want to stop you. And even names the city Nob, which is the city of the priests, which is just to the northeast of Jerusalem. It is within sight of Jerusalem. And God says, I'm going to let you get that far, and you're going to stop. And the king of Syria is boasting. The king of Assyria is like, I've got these commanders, and they're all like kings. And God calls him a piece of wood. He says, you know what you are? You're, you're, you're a stick in my hand. God uses him. God is not responsible for his sin, it's his own sin, his own, it's him in his own heart that's thinking, I'm going to destroy nations and not just a few, I'm going to march all over the whole world. And God says, okay, I'll let you go down that road as far as it serves my purposes. And then when I'm done doing my work, when I've finished what I want to do through you, I'm going to stop you. And I'm going to stop you in such a way 
that you will know who's really in control. Years and years after this king of Assyria, Assyria was going to be conquered by Babylon. And the great king of Babylon was even far greater than this great king of Assyria. His name, you probably know, it's Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire is the king that came along and who crushed the Assyrian Empire. Crushed it. Much of what God says here, there's kind of two parts to what God says here about the end of the Assyrian Empire. One of them has to do with what happens when he gets to Nob. And that happened in history about 20 years after this passage was written. And then the other one is a little bit later after that, what happens when the king of Babylon comes in and just completely wipes out Assyria. And that king of Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, you may know, was blessed even in his conquest of the world because he is the one that God did allow to conquer Jerusalem and to take the people of Jerusalem into captivity. What the king of Assyria was not allowed to do because it wasn't time yet, God did allow the king of Babylon to do. And the king of Babylon ends up with a young man in his service named Daniel. And Daniel is incredibly intelligent and capable and he's also a faithful servant of God and a gifted prophet. And he serves King Nebuchadnezzar well for years. And in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, a dream of a tree getting chopped down. And he's very troubled by it. And so he goes to Daniel, who's the guy who interprets dreams. And he's like, what's going on with this dream? And Daniel even tells him, he says, this dream's about you, O king. You're getting full of yourself. I'm paraphrasing what Daniel says here. You're getting a big head. You're getting full of yourself. And if you don't stop, God's going to chop you down. So this is a warning for you to repent. Nebuchadnezzar's like, got it, thanks. A year later, in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar is walking in the most magnificent city that the world has ever known up till that time. The hanging gardens of Babylon are one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so we, we pick up in Daniel 4, and he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. No, actually it's not. And so while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 
immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. God instantly and unmistakably humbled Nebuchadnezzar for his arrogant boasting because he wanted King Nebuchadnezzar to know who was really in charge. And actually, Nebuchadnezzar learns his lesson and says what I quoted about him earlier. He says, yeah, his kingdom is the everlasting kingdom. Mine is nothing. His is going to endure forever. Mine, (laughs) no. So he gets it. Well, the king of Assyria here in this passage still doesn't get it. He's boasting in the same exact way. In verse 13, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, I have understanding. And God says no. About 20 years later, the king of Assyria, having already conquered northern Israel completely, he's marching south toward Jerusalem. He's following the path that's really laid out right here in this passage. And he gets to within sight of Jerusalem. Nob is the city where you'd be able to see Jerusalem. He sets up his camp, an army of some 200,000 people. The, the, he sends the Rabshakeh, who is, who is the sort of military entourage, to go and, and, and sort of negotiate the surrender of Jerusalem. The Rabshakeh is so arrogant, and the king of Assyria is so arrogant, he says... And it's actually a different king of of Assyria, but still the same dynasty. And the Rapshik is so arrogant that he boasts. He says, my master will give you 2,000 horses if you can just put riders on their backs. And Jerusalem can't do that. They don't even have 2,000 guys who know how to ride a horse. And they're facing an army of about 200,000. And then... The king of Assyria boasts that none of the other gods of any of the other nations were able to stop him or deliver their people. And so Yahweh is going to be no different. (laughs) And Hezekiah, who's the king at the time, Hezekiah goes to Isaiah the prophet and he says, can we pray together about this? (laughs) And they actually put the letter of the king of Assyria before the Lord. But the Lord had already said right here exactly what he was going to do. And what happens, this is coming up in Isaiah 37. We'll get there sometime. Um, In one night, in one night, one angel of the Lord comes down and strikes dead 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. The next morning they wake up and 185,000 soldiers are laying dead. This is exactly what God said he was going to do here. Verse 16, he puts it as, Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send a wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. And then at the end of the passage in verse 32, he says, That very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down. So this is exactly what happens to the king of Assyria because, because we cannot boast as though we are in control. And that's why last week 
we heard from James that passage that I said that I don't think we really believe. That passage that says, tomorrow we will go to such and such a place and we'll stay there for such and such a period of time and we'll earn so much money. And James says, all such boasting is evil. You should say, if the Lord wills, because we need to remember like a fact that when we get up in the morning and we stand up and we leave our beds, that's given to us by God. That the breath you just took is yours, but the next one you're about to take is given to you by God. We need to know that because we need to live as those who are continually dependent on the Lord. Because we are. And that's the truth. We make our plans, sure. You ever notice that after a championship sporting event, sometimes the quarterbacks will boast or the, or the, um, or the point guard or whoever will, will, will actually give credit to God. So in the Super Bowl this year, you had um, Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes, um, both Christian guys, um, both from Texas. I'm not sure how they got that, but, you know. I guess they couldn't reach to the level of being born in Oklahoma, but um, both from Texas, both Christian guys, both would give credit to the Lord for everything they've done. And you ever notice how uncomfortable our culture has become with that? Like, there's video clips you can get of like TV interviewers like cutting them off when they're about to talk about God, you know, and just like, and so. They've learned to sort of talk around it so that it gets out there. They say, I'm so thankful because I'm so blessed, and I just really am thankful that I've had this opportunity. But when, but when they're bold, they will say, I'm so thankful to the Lord because I wouldn't be here without him, and he's given me the strength to be able to do this because it's true. And they know it. They know that there's thousands of kids who play quarterback for their Pop Warner team or for their high school and who are pretty good. And there's a lot of talent. And there's so many things that have to happen to get you in the next step. And there's so many injuries you have to avoid and opportunities that have to be open to you and people who have to see you. They realize they did not get where they are by themselves. They thank the Lord. Well, we may not be Super Bowl winning quarterbacks or Super Bowl losing quarterbacks, but we are where we are because God's brought us here. We didn't do it for ourselves. And the last thing we see God do as the sovereign Lord, not only does he use the king of Assyria and then judge the king of Assyria, but the third thing we see him do is he preserves a holy remnant that will trust in him. This is really what God is doing in this whole situation. His heart's desire is not primarily to punish his people and to discipline them in his wrath. His heart's desire is to bring his people back to depending upon himself. And so... In the last part of this passage, we see that the sovereignty of the Lord returns a holy remnant that trusts in him. In that day, verse 20, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. Think about the absurdity of that statement. They leaned on the one who struck them, but that's exactly what they were doing. 
they were sending envoys to Assyria, saying, oh, Assyria, come help us. And Assyria said, oh, thank you for all the silver and gold. Now we're going to come and get more from you. Forcibly extracted this time. They leaned on the one who struck them. Do we do that? Do we fear and rely and depend upon those who really are not on the Lord's side and who are not actually helping us to grow in the Lord? So the remnant will no more lean on him who struck them, but they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Now, there's actually levels of fulfillment going on here, just as in the name Emmanuel we saw in chapter 7. There were levels of fulfillment. There was a partial fulfillment that was immediately coming in Isaiah's second son, Emmanuel. But then there was a more greater fulfillment through the virgin who would conceive and give birth in Jesus. I think we see the same thing here. Because Paul picks up verse 22, and he quotes it in Romans 10:27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And he's using it to explain why it is that so few Jewish people have trusted in Jesus, the Messiah, for their salvation. And he's saying God is being faithful to save his holy remnant. Because historically, if you look at it, Israel was completely destroyed. They became the ten lost tribes of Israel. Judah was taken into captivity Babylon. They were restored 70 years later. But they never really trusted in the Lord. They did put away their idols. They did reestablish temple worship. They were better than they were before, but they never really trusted in the Lord. And the ultimate measure of that is obvious. Sometimes we miss the obvious. If the people who returned really trusted in the Lord... Then hundreds of years later, when the Lord showed up in their midst, they would have welcomed him and worshipped him. But they weren't trusting in the Lord. They were still leaning on the staff that struck them, only the staff had changed its name from Assyria to Rome. So how does this ultimately get fulfilled? It gets fulfilled when the Lord destroys in a way that is overflowing with righteousness. When the Lord makes a full end as decreed in the midst of the earth. It's just hinted at, it's shadow language, but sometimes that's what we get in the Old Testament. There's something greater coming than just the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The wrath of God is going to be poured out. Hear this, it's beautiful. Sometimes the gospel hides in plain sight. The wrath of God is going to be poured out. Destruction is going to be decreed, but in a way that is overflowing with righteousness. The wrath of God struck the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He was the cursed one of God. And even as he died, God also destroyed his temple because it didn't have a purpose anymore. And so he tore the veil in two from top to bottom and vacated the temple because it served its purpose. And as the blood of Jesus flowed, righteousness 
overflowed for the salvation of his people. The Lord made a full end of the sin of his people as decreed in the midst of all the earth. It's a beautiful picture, a little hint, a little foreshadowing of when Jesus would become our overflowing righteousness and then a remnant of the sons of Israel would come, but then the nations would come as well. And that, it's going to become more explicit. The way Isaiah works is things get hinted at early, and then we come back to them and they get more explicit. And then we come back to them and they get more explicit. So this is just a little hint of what God is going to do. So what do we do with this message today? We're talking about the king of Assyria marching and conquest. And like, what does that have to do with our lives? All these strange names of foreign cities and faraway places. We are not facing a conquest from Assyria. We're not tempted to trust in Assyria, are we? Are we? What does the Bible say? The Bible says that you and I as believers have three powerful enemies who oppose us with deadly force every waking moment of our lives, and sometimes even in our sleep. We have three powerful enemies who oppose us. The world, our own flesh, and the devil. And we can say, oh yeah, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Each one of them (laughs) is more powerful than you are, and you cannot stand up against them. We would never trust in them, though, would we? We would never trust in the one who strikes us, would we? Hmm. What about when we do what is right in our own eyes? When we do something, and the only reason we have for doing it is because we want to. I want to, I'm going to. We saw this morning in Sunday school. By the way, if you don't come to Sunday school, you're missing out because I was like jumping out of my chair this morning in Sunday school like this is such a perfect setup for the sermon today. And it's happened so many times. It's almost like God is sovereign. Uh, So that's my plug. Come to Sunday school. Um, But Samson, right? What was Samson's life? He, He saw, he wanted, he took, he got. He lived for his flesh. And when we live for our flesh, we are leaning on that which strikes us. We're leaning on our enemy, the enemy within. When we listen to the world, the world never stops lying to us, never stops speaking to us, saying, this thing over here will bring you happiness. This thing over here will bring you peace. This thing over here will make all your problems go away. This way over here is the way to have the good life. And, we, and when we listen, we're listening to our enemy. We're like the little mouse who smells peanut butter and who goes for it. By the way, always use peanut butter to get the mice in your house, not cheese. It works much better. They smell the peanut butter and they go for it and they're trapped. And that's us when we give into our flesh. And Satan, he's the one coming at us with accusations like, you can't really trust God. Did God really say, and here's how, I want to bring that back to the very practical reality of this passage right here. Did God really say that he's sovereign over everything, including human sin? Wouldn't that make him 
really responsible for the evil in the world and a God who is not to be trusted? I mean, after all, if God's able to stop the evil in the world and he chooses not to, then why would we trust him? How can there be a good God who is in control, as Sean so uh, wonderfully summarized our confession, he's a good God and he's in control. A lot of people would say, that doesn't make any sense. Because if there's a good God and he's in control, you'd expect to look around you and see a good world. But you see an evil world, so how it can be a good God who's in control? And that's Satan whispering at us, and we might give in in doubt and say, well, maybe God's not really good, or maybe God's not really in control. I have to give in on one of these two because it doesn't seem to make sense. He either can't be as in control as the pastor's saying he is, or he's not as good as he claims to be. The Bible tells us our only hope Our only hope is in a God who is good, purely good, who is goodness itself, from whom all goodness flows, from whom all light flows, from whom all truth flows, from whom all love flows. There's no truth, there's no goodness, there's no light, there's no love apart from God. He's the one who is the pure perfection of those things and the source of all of those things, and he is absolutely in control of everything that happens in the world. And he has a good purpose for it all, a purpose for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And our only hope is to trust that God, that he knows what he is doing, even when we can't see it, especially when we can't see it. Because very often his work is the most vital when we can't possibly see what the purpose of it is. Moms, think of Mary standing at the cross, looking up at her son, who never did any wrong to anybody, hanging naked, bloody, rejected, despised, mocked, and dying in agony, and even crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was prophesied to her that a sword would pierce her own soul. There was no darker moment in her life than when she saw her firstborn son on that cross giving his life. But that was actually the moment of her salvation. There's no way she could have seen that at the time. She was just in grief. (coughs) Or think about Joseph. When his brothers sold him into slavery. We read these Bible stories. just like, oh yeah, Joseph got sold into slavery by his brothers. Like, really? Joseph got sold into slavery by his brothers. And the alternate they were thinking of was to throw him in a ditch and let him starve to death. It's not a happy day. And then he gets falsely accused by Potiphar and he ends up in a pit of prison. There's no way in the world he could have seen that there was any good happening there, but that's exactly where God needed him to be so that he could be the deliverer of all of God's people. Because without going to slavery and the pit, he doesn't become the prime minister and he doesn't lead his people to deliverance. It's when we don't see that we must trust.
being a parent, I do think, helps with this somewhat. Um, I, I think I've told these stories before. Forgive me. They're just the ones that come to mind so readily. But there were little instances that happened in the lives of certain young men who were sitting in the back of the room who remain unnameless or na nameless. <laughs> but one of them, when he was uh, about four or five years old, fell going up the stairs in our townhouse, and his top teeth came down inside of his bottom teeth, and it broke his jaw. And his, his jaw was broken, his teeth were rolled forward, his blood was spitting out of his mouth, and I thought his teeth were loose, and I was just going to take him out so he didn't choke on him, and I realized they weren't loose, and I was like, okay, this is way above my pay grade. <clears throat> so we end up in a chair in an oral surgeon's office, and they're stitching up his jaw, and he is in agony. And around the same time, this other child was about two years old. And later, he trips coming up the stairs. What is it about tripping with stairs? Maybe that's, you know. He trips coming up the stairs in the basement, and he falls headfirst into a baby safety gate. It's there for safety. Ends up injuring him. He gets a cut above his eye, bleeding as only head wounds can bleed, right? Take him to patient first, and they're stitching him up. In both of these cases, the medical professionals who were treating them basically said they're so small, they're so lightweight, it's really tricky to use anesthesia well. We're just going to have to do the best we can and sort of power through it. You never heard screaming <laughs> like that screaming. And there's nothing I can do as a parent to rationally explain that to them, but it was what they needed. It was what they needed. And it was incredibly painful and something I hope they never have to go through again. But uh, look, that's just a little illustration in this world. I'm not trying to make light of anybody's pain. We've all been through things that are unspeakable, that we can't even speak of without crying, that have been so painful that we don't understand why in the world a sovereign God who is good would bring us through that. But our only hope is that there is a sovereign God who is good who brought us through that. Because what are the alternatives? There's an evil force so great that God can't control it? <laughs> or God's not really good? He just kind of enjoys seeing people in pain? Those are unthinkable. They're unbiblical, but they're also unthinkable. The only hope is in a sovereign God. And so I would say, as we conclude, if you ever doubt his love for you because of a painful circumstance you've been through, God calls you to look to one place, and that is to the cross. God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. That's how much he loves us. And if you doubt his power to overcome evil for our good, look to the empty grave. Because the world and the devil conspired together to keep that man dead but death could not hold him. Peter says it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He has conquered sin and death and hell forever. The one who gave up his life for our salvation 
is the one who loves us enough to always give us what is only good for us. And the one who conquered sin and death and hell forever is the one who has the sovereign authority to rule over all things. As Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are in control. We can trust you. On a Tuesday morning when our car breaks down on the way to work. On a Wednesday evening when we get into a fight with our spouse and words are said that are so ugly that they cut deep and they can't be taken back. When a diagnosis comes that we've been dreading and we don't know how we're going to get through it, we can trust you in all of those things because you are sovereign and you are good. Help us to trust you. Strengthen our faith. We believe. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name.